Well, as I mentioned earlier, we, uh, in the second week of a two-week subsection of a larger sermon series. Does that make any sense at all? Uh, our larger sermon series is following the tagline of a green tree throughout the year, uh, dig in, branch out, and live it up. So we looked at the book of Colossians earlier in the year, talking about how do we dig into Jesus, into uh, uh, his lordship in our lives. And now we're talking about now how do we live in our culture? Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian in our day and age and uh, be prepared to share our faith with others? Uh, and so as I was preparing this way back last year, it became very clear that you couldn't, uh, you couldn't go into a conversation about our culture without dealing with a question of human sexuality. Uh, and so last week, if you weren't here, let me encourage you, not because it was me, but you're not going to be able to follow this morning as well if you don't hear what I said last week. So don't get up and rush out right now. Uh, I mean, you can if you want to, but uh, take some time and go back, go to our website, pull the podcast up and listen to uh, last week. Because last week, what we talked about was theology. We talked about what does the Bible say about human sexuality? And we looked at that very carefully uh, last Sunday. This week, we're really going to ask the question, okay, now what? If this is what scripture says, and I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I believe that the word of God is authoritative in my life, and we're going we're gonna to talk about that in just a couple of minutes, then how do I live in a culture that, that most clearly has some very different opinions about human sexuality? Is, is there a way for us to live in a way that honors God, uh, even in our modern day culture? So that's where we're going to head this morning. I'm not going to go to one particular passage. It'll be like last Sunday. We're going to bounce around. So I haven't invited you to turn to a certain uh, uh, Bible verse because we're going to be looking at a bunch of them, uh, but uh, they'll all be on the screen as we go along. So let's pray, and then we will get in uh, to the text this morning. Father, we are so thankful, and we should be even more thankful for the grace that you have given us in Jesus. Father, our, our lives should be lives lived of thankfulness because Jesus would save sinners like us. Father, we thank you that the message of the gospel knows no barriers, knows no language barriers, knows no cultural barriers, because you love the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. So, Father, as we think about how we represent you in our culture, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our sports teams, in our businesses, in our offices, we think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this day and age and share that good news with others. This is clearly part of the conversation. Our culture is so absorbed in the question of human sexuality, and there's so many different viewpoints on it. Father, if, if we're not uh, at least versed in this to some extent, we will be irrelevant. But Father, thank you that your word is relevant today, that it speaks truth right into the heart of 21st century America with clarity, with precision, and with grace. So, Lord, we pray that we would hear truth this morning, not my version of truth, not someone's opinion of what truth might be, but that we would hear your eternal truth. Father, help us to worship you with our minds, with our intellect, not just with our emotions. Forgive me for my sin. Please don't let me be a hindrance this morning of your word in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So the sermon in a sentence this morning is actually two sentences because it sounded better after we broke it apart into two sentences. And it goes like this. The Bible's teaching on human sexuality creates some challenges for the modern disciple. There is the understatement of the month, right? There are some challenges that are created if you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to remain true to the word of God, and you're going to live in a culture that has some very different opinions about human sexuality. Therefore, that these challenges must be met with both grace and truth. So really what we're talking about this morning is application. How do we live in our culture? It, it, unless, you are, unless you've been on Gilligan's Island for the last few years, and I don't think they're there anymore, you understand that, that the church of Jesus Christ, the evangelical Bible-believing church of Jesus, is out of step with the mainstream culture in America today when it comes to human sexuality. George Barna did a poll recently, and he found out that 11% of Americans believe that if you're a member of a church, you are an extremist. Now, think about how the word extremist is used in our culture today. When you think about extremists, I think about turning on the news and seeing that somebody, you know, blew themselves up for a cause or or grabbed some innocent people and, and cut their heads off, something awful like that. But as a disciple of Jesus, if that's you and you're part of a local congregation, that being Green Tree, there's a percentage of our population that would say you're a big part of the problem. You are way out of step in, in the wrong direction. Individual freedom, tolerance, and tolerance being acceptance of others, not just I'm going, you know, back in the day you would say when I, when I tolerate you, it means I'm going to put up with you, right? I don't really like it. I don't like necessarily what you're doing or the decisions you're making, but I can tolerate that. That's not what tolerance means. In our generation, tolerance means that we accept, that we, that we condone as right, as good, and as healthy pretty much any behavior and every behavior. It's not so much what you believe, but it's that you have the freedom to do anything you want to and then some. To the extent that it's become the highest value. So if evidence would point us in a different direction, if there would be kind of, you know, some kind of study or scientific approach and we would say, you know, we actually have found that in the question of human sexuality, some of the decisions we're making as a culture seem to be taking people in an unhealthy direction, people would still respond with the notion of, I, I want to go my own way. Last week, I mentioned Paul McHugh is the, uh, the doctor who is the head of psychiatry, has been for uh, 26 years at, um, um, at, where was it? Now I've forgotten where he's at. At Johns Hopkins. Thank you. I forgot that between the first service and the second service. Uh, he's, he is the leading psychiatrist. He has studied uh, the question of transgender for over 20 six years. Uh, He is a person who is steeped in research and is one of the most brilliant people on this topic, and yet he finds himself out of step with mainline culture. I'm going to read for you a a, a quote from his article that's fairly long. It's going to take a minute or two to get through it, but bear with me and listen to what he says about the research that he's done, but how it, it simply hasn't gained acceptance. There are several reasons for this absence of coherence in our mental health system. Important among them is the fact that both the state and federal governments are actively seeking to block any treatments that can be construed as challenging the assumption and choices of transgendered youngsters. In two states, a doctor who would look into the psychological history of a transgendered boy or girl in search of a resolvable conflict could lose his or her license to practice medicine. 
By contrast, such a physician would not be penalized if he or she start, uh, started at such a patient on hormones and would block puberty, even if they would block puberty and perhaps stunt growth. What is needed now is public clamor for, for coherent science, biological and therapeutic science, examining the real effects of these efforts to support transgendering. Although much is made of a rare intersex individual, no evidence supports the claims that people such as Bruce Jenner have a biological source for their transgender assumptions. Plenty of evidence demonstrates that with him and most others, transgendering is a psychological rather than biological matter. In fact, gender dysphoria, the official psychiatric term for feelings oneself to be of the opposite sex, belongs in the family of similar disorder assumptions about the body, such as anorexia nervosa and the body uh, and body dysmorphic disorder. Its treatment should not be directed at the body, as with surgery and hormones, any more than one treats obesity-fearing anorexic patients with liposuction. The treatment should strive to correct the false problematic nature of the assumption and to resolve the psychological conflict provoking it. With youngers, this is best done in family therapy. And then he concludes, the larger issue is the meme itself. The idea that one's sex is fluid, a matter open to choice runs unquestioned through our culture as is reflected everywhere in the media, theater, classroom, and many medical clinics. It has taken on cult-like features, its own special lingo, internet chat rooms providing slick answers to new recruits, and clubs for easy access to dresses and styles supporting the sex change. It is doing much damage to families, adolescents, children, should be confronted as an opinion without biological foundation wherever it emerges. But gird your loins if you would confront this matter. Hell hath no fury like a vested interest masquerading as a moral principle. So here is a man who is, whose, whose primary objection to some of the freedom that we are uh, offering up as a culture and acceptance that we are offering up as a culture is that there is no scientific data. In fact, the scientific data goes the opposite direction, and yet he is warning those who would take such a position that you may be in for the fight of your life. Clearly, the church of Jesus Christ is swimming against the tide. So what do we do? How do we live in this day and age with grace and with truth? Well, I want to mention just two things from last Sunday's sermon because it's important for us to, uh, to keep this in context. We believe, uh, as does the, 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 the church of Jesus, the evangelical church of Jesus, that the word of God is inerrant, that it's God-breathed, that, it's, that he is the ultimate author, and therefore, because he is the author, he has the final say. So what the Bible says to us is not a, a nice piece of advice. It's, it's not some encouraging words, but rather it is authoritative on every matter which it speaks. So we looked at this verse last week in a little more detail. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for several things. So what we believe at Green Tree is that the Bible is truth. Does it contain truth? Does it speak to truth? It is truth. And therefore, it is authoritative in our lives because it's not from man. It is from 
God. Now, you can disagree with that. You can say, I think you're cracked bananas, as one of my friends likes to say. You, I don't believe that for a minute. That's absolutely fine. If you ever want to sit down and have a cup of coffee on how I came to that conclusion or how people have followed Scripture in that way, I'll be more than happy to do that. But you need to understand that for our purposes this morning, what I'm sharing with you is not my opinion about anything. What I'm seeking to do is to share clearly from the authoritative word of God. The second thing we need to understand is that in that context, God created human sexuality. And he gave it to us as a blessing in the context of marriage relationship between a man and a woman. And we looked at a couple of verses. I gave you, if you were here last week, you remember the pop quiz. What are the, what's the, what are the first words that God said to humanity? What did he talk about? Did he talk about creation? Did he talk about his glory? Did he talk about salvation? No, he talked about physically expressing yourself through sexuality. Be fruitful and multiply. That that is a statement about using our human sexuality. But he also gave it to us in the context. He also put it in parameters. He said, I want the best for you. I'm giving you this world. I've created this, this, this wonderful planet for you. Everything in the universe works so that you can have life. You are my special creation. With you, all of this is very good. So I'm going to protect you. And I'm, as the creator, I'm going to tell you how it works. And then go knock yourself out. Use it to your heart's content. But he gave us parameters. He said, here's how it fits. Now, again, you can say, I don't like the parameters. I disagree with the parameters. But this is what God has said. That our sexuality is to be expressed between a man and a woman and only in the context of marriage, period, end of paragraph. That is the directive that Scripture gives us. So we're operating with those two principles this morning, that Scripture is authoritative and that Scripture has given us the correct expression of our human sexuality. So how do we face the challenge Uh, that's created by the Bible's teaching on human sexuality, if we're going to branch out, if we're going to engage joyfully and with some vim and vigor in the public discourse for the sake of the gospel. I'm going to give you five observations this morning. We'll move through them at a pretty good clip. The first is this. We need to, to, if we're going to, to share, we're going to face these challenges successfully. We need to understand that this conversation is part of a larger conversation. We need to understand it in the context of our calling. Jesus said to his disciples when he's getting ready to go home, I'm getting ready to go home. I'm leaving, but I want to give you some instructions before I go. Number one, the Holy Spirit. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. He's going to come upon you. You're going to have power, right? And you will then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That little last phrase, to the end of the earth, has not only uh, geographic connotations to it, but it also has generational context to it. In other words, every disciple that follows those disciples has the same marching orders. We don't have to wonder if that was just for the first group. It's for us as well today. Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses. Jesus doesn't say, you're going to be the morality police when it comes to sex. Jesus doesn't say, now when you talk about people, make sure you lead with the hot topic and make sure that you're self-righteous and make sure that you put them in their place. Jesus doesn't say that. There's a place for us to take a stand on what we believe, but with humility and with grace and with compassion, just as Jesus did. Jesus doesn't call us to be first and foremost the morality police. He calls us to be his witnesses. If you want to know what that means, go back and read the Gospels. And look at how Jesus lived his life. Look at the grace that was in Jesus' life. And look at the truth. Those are the two words we're centering in on this morning. Look at those two things. You will find them abundantly present 
in the Gospels. And Jesus says, go and, and, and preach that way. Go and live that way. Share with others in the context of being my witness. You're not calling people to a denomination. You're not calling people to think a certain way, first and foremost. You're calling people to the grace and the mercy of God. And secondly, he also says, and although I've taken them in reverse order, I'm going to give you the power to do that. The Holy Spirit is going to be given to you. If you're like me and you're at a social gathering, wherever it may be, outside of the context of the church, you know, you're at a, a business function or your, your neighborhood is having a block party, wherever you find yourself, and the topic of human sexuality comes up, and it comes up in the context of all those old fuddy-duddies that, that just want to ruin everybody else's fun, if you're like me, you just want to walk away. You just, you know, you want to grab your cup of coffee or your, you know, your hors d'oeuvre or your beer, whatever you have in your hand, and you just want to go the other direction. You, you, you just don't want to be the guy or the gal that says, well, now, wait a minute. Let's think about that a little bit. Why? Because that's hard. And because it's very easy to be misunderstood. And it's very easy to be seen as a hateful person. So it's a whole lot better to just keep your head down and your mouth shut, except for the fact that Jesus has told us not to. Jesus has told us to be his witnesses, and Jesus is full of truth. And you can't let a lie go by if you're a disciple of Jesus. You can't let it go by in your own life, and you can't let it go by in the larger world. But Jesus is also full of grace, and he gives us the power to balance both of those. But we need to understand the context of our calling is in the context of being a disciple of Jesus and sharing his gospel. Secondly, we need to, as a church, and this even more individually, as parents and grandparents, we need to teach our children God's word and God's character. Train a child in the way he should go. And even when he's old, he won't depart from it. I had a, a, a youngster who it couldn't have been more than, I guess, maybe six years old, about three weeks ago, came up to me and said, Pastor Tom, how old are you? I said, I'm 57. And they went, oh. <laughs> and they just walked away. <laughs> like, God forbid I would ever be 57. That's, you know, you got one foot in the grave and the other one's, the other one's slipping a little bit, you know. But if you train a child, it'll stick with them. You know, I remember when I was young and I could memorize a lot. I remember when I could, I could hear a passage of Scripture, and, and in about 10 minutes, it would sink in, and I could actually recite it back. I can't do that anymore. But at one point in my life, my, life, my brain was like a sponge, and it could, it could hear it, and we need to train our children, not just the information about God, but about His character and about his love for his people. First, uh, Second Timothy 3.16, we mentioned a minute ago, all, all scripture is profitable. It's God-breathed, right? These are the verses that go right before that verse. But for you, Timothy, Paul's writing to a young pastor, probably in his early 20s. But for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. For those of us that are moms and dads, for those of us that are grandparents, it's nonsensical for us to think that our kids will get it when they get older, that we should just leave that for a little bit later on, and hopefully they will get it at some place in youth group or in young life or K-life, and that that's really a job for the professionals. Paul says very clearly here, Timothy, you grew up in a house where you learned it from day one, where it was given to you in the proper context, that you learned it and you believed it. Most uh, studies show that people come to Christ at a, an extraordinarily high rate between the ages of 4, 5, and 17 or 18 years old. 
But most people who are, who are disciples today came to Christ as children. So we need to teach our children about the character and the glory of God and the power of his word because they are being bombarded with, with thousands of other messages. I printed off half a copy. This is not a report. This is not a study. Each one of the dots, and this is, this is four pages long, and there are 44 bullet points. Each of these bullet points represents a separate study. And I copied, I copied about half of it. So this, is, this study, or this paper, had about 88 different studies that cited talking about children and technology. And it covers uh, cell phones and tablets and parental controls and privacy and social media, cyberbullying, inappropriate use, education. It goes through the whole, and I'm not going to read it to you, but let me just tell you, parents, your children are seeing things that no generation has ever seen before at the age in which they're seeing it. If you think you know what your kid's doing on their phone or their, or their tablet, you just might want to rethink that a little bit. It's amazing, as I read some of this material, what the predators are doing to our children. And yes, I'm calling them predators. What they're doing to, to, to speak lies into our children's lives. And if there were ever a day where we needed to teach our children and invest in them spiritually, it's, it's today. I was talking to a 19-year-old earlier this week, and she said, you know, Tom, do you, don't you understand that most people my age assume that people like you hate gays and, 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 and that God does too? That that's just a foregone conclusion. Before you even get into the conversation, you've already been put in that box. There's a person who's 19 years old, right? What's being taught to our children outside of the context of their faith is is challenging for us. And we must give them a spiritual foundation to navigate their world. That's one of the things I love about baptism. When we baptize our children, we don't have one godparent or two godparents stand up with our children. The whole church stands up and we make a promise. And we need to be faithful to that promise, brothers and sisters. I'm not saying everybody should sign up to be a Sunday school teacher, right? I, ch- small children scare me to death, right? <laughs> but I could be generous with my money to make sure that this building's lights stay on so that children can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? I, can, I, could, I could maybe be somebody who helps with sign-ins. I get, there's all kinds of ways. I could, I could maybe come to vacation Bible school and open doors and let people get out of their, their car. And go. There, we need to take seriously the need our children have for godly direction because parents and close friends of parents and family members are still the greatest influence in the lives of our children. That's the one thing that God's given us that hasn't changed. And to grow up in a family where you actually hear the truth of the gospel, you guys that are young and you're hearing it now, and by the way, if you're a visitor, I never cry. So this is really odd for me. Uh, Why are y'all laughing? You don't know yet, but someday you'll say it and I'll be dead and gone. But you go, you know, before Pastor Tom died, he said, when he was really old at 57, he, <laughs> he said, I, I really don't know how great I have it to grow up in a house where my parents love Jesus and they want to share that with me. It will give you a foundation for the rest of your life. We must be faithful for that. I got three other things I need to move along. <sighs> Take care of our kids. Thirdly, we must apply scripture with consistency. Look at James chapter two. James calls out Christians who want to, who want to make other people feel really bad about their sins and make light of their own sins. They want to be kind of self-righteous and say, well, you know, I might be kind of bad, but you're really bad. And, and, he, and, he's, and he calls us out on that. He says, if you really want to fulfill the royal law, according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbors yourself. You're doing well. 
But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole part of the law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. What James is saying there is that there's no room for self-righteousness and judging others in the sense of judging that I'm better and you're worse. There's no room for the church of Jesus Christ or you and me as disciples of Jesus to see ourselves as people in need of less grace while those really bad sinners out there who who are distorting human sexuality, they're the ones that really need grace because they're the really bad people. James says there's no room for that. He says that actually makes you a lawbreaker. That thought, that self-righteousness actually puts you in opposition to God's word. There's no room for the disciple of Jesus to teach that one sin is greater than another or condemn some sins and ignore others. And I mentioned this last week and I'm going to mention it again today. I think in particular, we're talking about human sexuality, so we're talking about every aspect of it. But in particular, I believe the gay community is right to call us out and say, you never say anything about couples that have one night stands or are living together before they get married and sexually active, but we're the bad guys. And doesn't your Bible say that any sexuality outside of marriage is wrong and they're, and they're dead right? And our inconsistency is a shame on the gospel. It's a shame on us. And it doesn't speak to the truth of God's word. We must be consistent with the way we apply Scripture. Fourthly, I believe we must also love our own well. Look at Galatians chapter 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, a couple things here. First, uh, Paul identifies someone caught in a transgression. Transgression is a willful act of disobedience. It's knowing that you shouldn't do it and you do it anyway, right? So you're five years old and it's 20 minutes before dinner and you come to mom and say, mother, thou art wonderful. You're the most tremendous person on the planet. May I have a cookie? (laughs) <laughs> and mom's going to say, no, you're going to have your vegetables first. You're going to, you know, you're going to have dinner. Then you're going to have a cookie. And then mom leaves the room and you go, well, mom said I couldn't, but she's not here. And there's the cookie jar. I'm taking the cookie and I'm eating it. That's a willful act of disobedience. That's a transgression. When Paul uses the word sin, he means that we fail to do all we should. So, you, you know, mom pulled up the driveway. She's got the grocery bags and I should go out and help her, but I don't. I am failing to do all I could. But here he says a transgression. So Paul is saying something very important that our generation doesn't like. There is a right and there is a wrong. It isn't just what you think. It isn't just you can have your truth and I can have my truth. Paul says if you're caught in a transgression, if you're stuck in a way of life that is harmful to you and dishonoring to God, what should happen? You should be cared for by the people around you. So there is, there's the truth that there is such a thing in this day and age. There always has been since Adam and Eve went the wrong direction and there always will be till Jesus comes back. There is right and there is wrong. And God loves us enough to tell us the truth, to say, don't go down that road, child. And if you go down that road, it's going to be harmful to you. But notice how he challenges the leaders of his church. 
If anybody's stuck in a, a transgression, they, they can't get out of it. You who are spiritual, you who, are, who, who understand what's going on, you want to restore them. Notice it doesn't say judge them. Notice it doesn't say put them in their place. Notice it doesn't say condemn them. The goal of the church is to care for our wounded, not shoot them. And we're called to do so in humility. Do so with what? A spirit of gentleness. I have some people in my my life that will tell me the truth. They love me enough to tell me the truth. It always helps when they do so gently. It always helps when they they sit me down and say, you're you're probably not going to like this, but if I didn't love you, I wouldn't tell you this. And Paul calls us to have humility of heart, to have grace as much as we have truth. I can't stop saying that sexuality outside the context of, of a relationship between a man and a woman is, is, is sinful, is a transgression against God. But the way in which I say that, does my heart break over people that, that are blind to that and, and are being hurt by that? Or do I feel like I have some kind of self-righteous bully pulpit from which you tell everybody how bad they are? I mentioned last week uh, Wesley Hill and the book that he wrote back in 2010 called Washed and Waiting. And I want to read... Uh, a little bit out of this book this morning. This is a guy who's, who's a, a, a devout disciple of Jesus, and he struggles with same-sex attraction. And he, he is talking about his heart in the first couple paragraphs I'm going to read. But then he talks about the church and, and our response and how important it is that for those who struggle with same-sex attraction, they have, and for any other sin for that matter, we just happen to be talking about that this morning, that there's actually a safe place to land. That really what people are after is restoring and caring and loving and not hurting others. So here's, here's what he says. The love of God is better than any human love. Yes, that's true. But that doesn't change the fact that I feel in the deepest parts of who I am that I am wired for human love. I want to be married. And the longing isn't mainly for sex. And sex with a woman seems impossible at this point. It's mainly for day-to-day small kinds of intimacy where you wake up next to a person you've pledged your life to, and then you brush your teeth together, and you read a book in the same room without necessarily talking to each other. You share each other's small joys and heartaches. Do you know what I mean? One of my married friends told me she delights to wake up at night and feel her husband's foot just a few inches from hers in their bed. It is the loss of that small kind of intimacy in my life that feels devastating. And of course, the small intimacy is precious because it represents a bigger intimacy of the covenantal union of two lives. It's hard for me to think about living without this. Yes, I have dear friends, several who are so precious to me. I truly believe I would give my life for them. One of my closest is another single guy uh, about my age. But I know that things will change. He will move away, get married, and the kind of relationship we have will change. We will still be friends, hopefully, but it will not be like marriage. And don't you think we're wired? And here he has in parentheses Genesis chapter 2, the, the, the notion of intimacy. Um, you know, cling to one another to become one flesh. And don't you think we're wired to want that kind of companionship that can only come through marriage? And then a little couple pages later, he asks, I think some really good, I think the right questions. What if the church were full of people who were loving and safe? And willing to walk alongside people who struggle. What if there were people in the church who kept confidences, who took the time to be Jesus to those who struggle with homosexuality? What if the church were what God intended it to be? 
I think we would still have lots of struggles and lots of challenges, but I believe uh, the Spirit of God is speaking through Wesley Hill to uh, Green Tree and is calling us to a life of grace and truth, that we really would be uh, a place of safety for lost and broken sinners. I've heard people say from time to time, you know, Green Tree is a friendly place, but people kind of look cleaned up here and they look like they kind of got it all together. And sometimes it's hard to acknowledge that, uh, that you're, you know, you're sinful and you're broken. So I'm thinking of having a microphone up here and just having everybody come up and say what their sins are. And uh, would you like to be first? No, I'm just that was a joke. <laughs> I'm glad it was because the way she looked at me, I'd have, I'd have been in big trouble. But why, why wouldn't we do that? Do you think you don't have sin in your life? Or do you think you have sin in your life that other people don't have in your life? See, that's what Satan does. He, he wants us to be isolated. He wants us to think we're by ourselves. So whether it's same-sex attraction or you're stealing from your employer or you're cheating on your husband or your wife, it's all the same. And if we don't look out for each other, if we don't do what Paul calls us to in Galatians, then, then why are we here? Where is the gospel of Jesus Christ if it's not in the depths of our being, and when it comes to this kind of topic, I don't want the world to outdistance me on compassion. God forbid that we wouldn't lead the pack and say, you know what? We are a people who care for our own. Well, you want to come to Green Tree because people will genuinely love you with the love of Christ. And fifthly, and lastly, we must love our larger community with the unconditional love of Jesus. And this is both attitudinal as well as action. In Matthew chapter 22, one of the religious guys come to Jesus and says, okay, well, what's the greatest commandment in the law? Uh, he's talking in particular about the, what we know as the Ten Commandments today. And Jesus answers, says, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is a great first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You ever wonder why God put it in that order? You ever wonder why it didn't, it wasn't flipped? Love your neighbor and in loving your neighbor, you'll learn to love God. Let me tell you something. You try to love your neighbor to learn to love God, it is not going to happen. It might make you question whether or not there actually is a God in heaven. But when you get around the love of God, you get around the cross of Jesus, and you're really honest about your sin, and maybe you're just doing it by yourself. Maybe there's nobody else around, but you're transparent about your sin and you realize how broken you really are. And you, then you realize how much God has loved you. As John says in his first epistle, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. You can't live around that and not have it kind of squeak out of the edges of your life. In other words, you'll start to love your neighbor as yourself as you draw near to the love of God. That's attitudinal. But there's an action that goes with it. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And by Gentiles, he's really talking about people that, 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 aren't, that don't know Jesus, that aren't saved. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is where I kind of have to laugh and go, I don't understand why people say that Scripture isn't practical today. People are going to call you evildoers, right? 11% of our, of our population is already calling us extremists, and they're not meaning it as a compliment. People are going to hate you because of the gospel. That's one thing. It's quite another thing for them to hate you because of the gospel, because you live a hypocritical lifestyle, because I say one thing and I do something else. Peter says to his followers, it's, it's going to happen. People are going to hate you, but may they be confounded by the grace of God in your life. 
I would hope that people would say, that Tom Ricks, that no good so-and-so, he, he, he thinks that sex is only meant to be, to be celebrated in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. He's so narrow-minded. He's just so old-fashioned. He just, he's a hater. But you know what? He's not really a hater because I, I, I know him, and he actually is a nice and a caring and a giving guy. I can't quite put those two things together. That's what Peter's after for us. He wants people to be confounded by the gospel because eventually you got to say, well, what's going on? And that's where the spirit of God moves in. And that's where the spirit of God begins to convict of sin. That's not our job. It's the spirit's job to convict of sin and draw to salvation. There's an action part of our lives that says our, our lifestyle matches up with our creed, which is about grace and truth. And Jesus gives one more kind of attitudinal action item in Luke chapter six, a little bit longer passage. Read it real quick. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and for the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so for them or to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is it for you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that for you? For even sinners do the same. And if you, leave, excuse me, if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies. Do good, lend, expecting nothing in return. Your reward will be great, for you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful, to the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The tone and the attitude and the actions of our lives are to represent that to the world that hates us because of what we believe about human sexuality. I had a really fascinating experience last Sunday night. It didn't dawn on me till afterwards. We invited people to come out and chat a little bit more about this question if they, if they wanted to discuss a little bit more. And there were probably about 25 of us. And we sat in this room and kind of made a little circle and we chatted and uh, asked and answered questions and kind of knocked things around for a while. But it dawned on me later on that almost all of the questions didn't so much have to do with what the Bible says. I think we had covered that Sunday morning. Everybody was kind of okay with that. But it was, there were application questions. How do I live in the world and love people well? Because I know they're going to disagree. How do, how, do I, how do I not come across as judgmental? And basically what it turned into was two hours of people talking about how to love the, their enemies, how to love people that, that might actually hate them because of what they believe. Now tell me another group that does that. Almost every person in this room, I know we have some exceptions and we're praying for you exceptions, but almost every person in this room is part of a nation called Cardinal Nation, right? <laughs> Renee's going to the ball game. She's got her Cardinal shirt on, right? Okay. She even got matching shoes now. We go crazy. There's another jersey back there. We go crazy about the Cardinals and those of you that are like with the Cubs or whatever, we're sorry for you, but I've never been to Bush Stadium I've never been any place where Cardinal nations gather around a cup of coffee or soft drink or whatever and had Cardinals fans say, how do we really let those Cub fans know we love them? How do we minister to them unconditionally in their brokenness? And I've never been with a group of conservatives that have said, how do we make sure that liberals know we love them? Never been around a group of liberals that have said, we want to make sure that conservatives know the genuine compassion 
we have for them. That's why you're countercultural. That's the biggest difference is that there's actually the spirit of God living in you that has prompted something so radically different that the world doesn't necessarily even know what to do with it. We don't know what to do with it sometimes because God loves his enemies and he gives us that spirit. This is not an easy conversation, brothers and sisters. This is not a simple topic. This is not for the faint of heart. It would be much easier to just kind of move away from the conversation and to, and to live in, in fear or to live in just, you know what, I just, I'm not going to rock the boat, but the gospel compels us. Why? Because we want to win the debate on human sexuality? No, because we want to be Jesus to people. We want them to know the life that is in him. That's where we're at odds with our culture. We can't say that sin is okay. That's why I so appreciate um, what, what Wesley Hill said. He said, this is the, this is the struggle in my life. I'm, I'm not going to say that, that, my, that my same-sex attraction is not a temptation to lead to sin. It is. I so appreciate that. And he, and he stands firm on that. And we must stand firm in our understanding of what Scripture says about human sexuality. But at the end of the day, it's not so that we can be right. It's so that people will see the grace along with the truth. And then perhaps they will see Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, your word. Thank you that it is truth and that it is practical and relevant for today. Father, the application of... uh, these sermons is not, yippee, we're, we're really right what we believe about human sexuality. It's rather, how do we live in a world that believes so differently in a manner that would, that would allow people that don't know you to come to salvation? So, Father, take away our arrogance. Take away our hatred of those that are different than us. Father, allow us to be a church that really does care for its own and loves its community to the extent that people would be confounded, not by us, but by your grace and by your truth. For your glory, Lord Jesus, and the good of your people, we pray. Amen.